In those days, we're talking about 1982, there were very few foreigners in Japan who weren't in the big cities for business. Sometimes it was like being a rock star. People walking down the street would stop you and ask for your autograph just because you're not Japanese. I've got an arrangement with the hotel where if people want to come to Ohara and have a look around the Musashi area, I give them a talk on the history of Musashi, talk about the history of Kendo and Iida, and then I can give them a demonstration of both arts and they can feel what it's like to hold a sword themselves or try the arm one, etc. I still think of England as home. I still think of this as a short trip, even though it's somehow become 21 years. This is just my latest little visit. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Insight Look podcast. Today we're speaking with Trevor Jones Sensei, originally from London, England, and has been living continuously in Japan for the past 21 years. Many of us Budo practitioners have dreamed about what it would be like to move to Japan and live a simple life of martial arts practice. And in this wide ranging conversation around his life in Iido and Kendo, Jones Sensei gives us a glimpse of what that life could be. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversation with Trevor Jones Sensei. My name is Trevor Jones. I'm from London, England, and growing up in the 60s and 70s, I had no particular interest in martial arts. I think the first I saw of it was seeing a few of the Bruce Lee films that came out, like Enter the Dragon and The Fist of Fury, but I never imagined it was anything that I'd be interested in getting into. There was a big thing in England at the time. I think a lot of the karate dojos were jumping on the bandwagon a little bit and pretending they were kung fu and just adding lots of Bruce Lee sounds to their techniques and raking in the money because I don't think there was any actual kung fu much in that way going on. Although it was interesting watching in the cinema, but I was never that particularly interested in going along because being the new guy, you always think you're going to be the punch bag for the high-level guys, and that never really appealed to me. So my introduction to the martial arts came about in 1978 when I was 23. And it was basically a couple of my old school friends who were already doing a little bit of judo or karate. And one was particularly interested in Japan. He'd read a lot of history books. I think even his bedroom in Southeast London, he slept on the floor tatami style like Japan. You know, he was going all the way. And those guys found a martial arts magazine advertised a phone number for Kendo. And so they wanted to find out if there was any Kendo in our Southeast London area. They phoned up the British Kendo Association and found out that a Japanese Kendo teacher had just recently moved to the area. He'd come over from North London. So they got in touch with him, went along to see him. And he said, yeah, I'd be willing to start up a fresh new dojo, but we need a minimum of six or eight people to make it viable. So then those two guys started asking around their friends to find out if anybody would be interested in coming along, me being one of them. And we were all school friends who'd known each other for many years. So that seemed a good opportunity to be in at the grassroots level because there were no higher grades. There was nobody there to beat you up or anything. And I think for me, one of the reasons was I'd be doing it with a bunch of people I knew. Secondly, we'd all be basic raw beginners. And so that was an incentive to go along. And you didn't want to be left out of something that your mates were going to be doing either. So because of that, I said, sure, I'll come along, make up the numbers. And that was really all it was. It was purely making up the numbers and doing something for the first time with a bunch of friends. 
And I think what kept us all there for those first few months was one point, nobody wanted to be the worst in the group. Second point, nobody wanted to be the first to drop out. So we all kept at it from the April of 78 through to through the summer and the autumn. In the beginning, it was just jeans and t-shirts with a shin eye. We'd met Mr. Fuji, who was from Saga, and we were using a school gym, like an after-school activity. We began once a week, and we did a sponsored walk to raise money for a club armour. That was our first armour that we got. And with Mr. Fuji's armour, that was it. We just had six Shinai and two armours. The thing that changed for me personally was in the autumn of that year, we went along to our first kendo competition. And I don't know what it was, but walking into that dojo, and I think it was the Mumeshi Threes over in West London near Heathrow Airport. And from what I remember, it was more just the atmosphere of being in that hall and the feeling of everybody. And from that day, it just seemed to click. And from that day onwards, I didn't do it because I was worried about not being the first dropping out. I didn't care whether I was the best or the worst or not. From that day onwards, I was doing the kendo for the kendo. And at that time, we didn't know anything about EI. So that was how I got started. So that first competition that you went to, was it the practice or the competing with other people? I don't remember the competing. We probably all got knocked out in the first round because I think we'd only been wearing armour for about three weeks or whatever. I don't even know if we had three arms because it was a three-man team. But um, as I say, it was just the buzz of being there amongst all the people. I don't remember any particular conversation, but it was the feeling of being in that room in that community more than anything else and yeah i just came away from there with a, with a different outlook on kendo and yeah i guess that's pretty much stayed with me since then was the dojo run like a traditional japanese like now that you have a more exposure to was it very traditional in that sense or did it feel i think the way that fuji sensei run the dojo you know, the type of practice where, you know, he was quite strict on the etiquette and everything. And so the way we lined up, the way we did all the etiquette, yeah, I think it's pretty much the same as I've seen here. In fact, you know, some of the dojos I've seen in Japan, they're, they're sort of less strict on the etiquette, you know, kids running in and out without turning to bow and stuff like that. So I think, uh, yeah, it was very traditional in that sense, very much so. But I also remember the first time we had to prepare the shinai, we did that in Mr. Fuji's kitchen with pieces of broken glass. So we had a little shard of glass shaving the edges of the shinai and learning how to put the thing together long before we got to do any tsuburi. And then I think we started in the April, we did the April, May, June. And after that, it was the summer holidays so the school was closed. I remember being out on a field outside Fuji Sensei's house and we did suguri out there in our jeans and t-shirt because we hadn't even got Hakamura Keikogi by that time, you know. So yeah, that was how we started off. And Iaido came a year later and that came as a complete surprise because Fuji Sensei had never even mentioned Iaido up to that point. And four of us jumped in a car with him and we drove over to Belgium for a weekend kendo seminar that he was running for some people that he'd known for many years because he'd been in England since the 60s. 
So we went over there to do some kendo with this group of people in Antwerp. And we were in one dojo doing a bit of practice here and there. And we happened to glance through a door into the next door dojo. And there's people, a few of them, I guess, had Iaito, a couple of them just with Bokto. And they're kneeling down and doing what we know of as Seitei. At that time, there were only seven forms of Seitei. Now we added another three, then we added another two. But at that time, there was only one to seven. And we're looking through the door going, what's going on in there? And Fuji-sensei was teaching. So he knew this. And it's like, okay, we're going to have some of that when we get back to England. So as soon as we got back, I think by then we'd started up two, you know, it was a year later. So by then we were doing two nights a week kendo, Monday and Thursday. And then we added a Tuesday night EI practice. So that came on almost exactly a year later in May 1979 one year after the kendo started. Why do you think he didn't introduce it to you earlier? And did you have to ask him to like coax him into teaching? Well, once, once we said, what's that you're doing in there? He said, oh, this is the Ido. He said, oh, can we start just to say, oh, well, can we give that a try when we go back to England? Yeah, sure, why not? I think it was just a case of, you know, we were doing kendo and he had his hands full with that and probably just never occurred to him more than anything else, you know. I don't think it was anything that he was teaching regularly. He didn't have any grade at that time himself. And when he went back to Japan one time and, and he was talking to his senseis down in Sagan, they said, well, if you're going to be teaching some Iaido from now on regularly in England, then you need to have a grade. So he did an open grading and I think he wanted to take third dam, but the, the senseis in Saga said, no, third's not enough, so take fourth. So he did his fourth down at an open grading after never having done a grading before. And then that was sometime, I can't remember when that might have been, probably early 80s or something like that. Yeah, so that was basically how we got started. And then it just grew from there. So what was the next kind of major change in, because you were already practicing twice a week and then when did uh, it Yeah, yeah. Yourself? The next major change, I guess, was going to Japan because Fuji Sensei wanted to build the dojo more than just doing once or twice a week. I mean, by this time, it was 1981-82 and we had a dozen, 20 members, something like that. People come and go, as you know. And he'd wanted to set up a connection with his Kenseikai Dojo in Saga so that people could go over for a year, live in a little apartment, teach a bit of conversational English on the side, but practice at the dojo where he started when he was like five or six years old and do some hard training on a regular basis that you wouldn't be able to get in England. So two guys came over in spring of 81 until spring of 82, and then myself and two more guys, English guys from our dojo. We came over in March of 82 and took over from the first two guys, took over the flat, took over their little English classes, and we stayed for 13 months. So we were able to arrive in Japan, because we'd already have done our showdown, we were able to get our Nidan when we arrived, and then we got our Sandan <laughs> just before we left. So that worked out really well. You can't do that now between Nidan and Sandan, of course. But the idea of going there, actually, Fuji Sensei said to me, Trevor, you're going next year. And I was like, oh, am I? Okay. 
<laughs> so I didn't actually ask to go. He told me I was going. Oh, fair enough. One of the two guys I went with was the one who was the guy really into Japan. So I guess he was up for it right from the beginning. And it was only meant to be the two of us. And then a third member of our club said, could he come along as well? So it turned into three. But yeah, I knew nothing about Japan. We hadn't studied the language. We actually did a few classes of very basic, you know, good morning, good afternoon, one, two, three, four, five days of the week with Fuji Sensei's wife. So we were doing a little class like that. And Fuji Sensei said that, you know, don't expect much when you get there. Saga is a small country town. So we are thinking, okay, we're going to ride in on the back of a horse and cart or something like that, and there won't be a train station. So I quit my job, a job that I was reasonably happy with at the time. Roy was working for his dad anyway, the one who was into Japan. So I think he could leave and then come back when he got back anyway. And our third friend decided to stop what he was doing and yeah, just come over. So yeah, quit our jobs, came over and... I guess we landed at Fukuoka, we took the train into Saga, and it's like, wow, big train station, this isn't the small country town that we expected, you know, it was a bigger city than we imagined it was going to be. I mean, once you've been there for a year, you realise that you can ride your bicycle from one edge of the city to the other edge in about 25 minutes. You know, it wasn't that big a place. And once you've been there a while, you know that everybody knows you. But it certainly didn't feel like that when we arrived. And I guess we were pretty excited about being there. And of course, there were a few unusual things that took a while to get used to. But to be honest, I had more trouble going back to England after 13 months than I did adjusting to Japan. I had more of a reverse culture shock than I did spending my time in Saga. And yeah, I found that stranger in a way that very first time. That's interesting. I was gonna ask you that exact question after staying there for over a couple decades and coming back. But even after just 13 months, that first trip, you were already feeling- Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, that was the biggest change. I mean, now after all this time, I don't have any problem between the two countries. And I'll come to that later if you like. But uh, yeah, I think we found the speed of life so much more relaxed than England. I mean, in those days, we didn't have coffee shops where you could just hang out and sit and nobody says, drink your drink and get out. Whereas in Japan, the Kisatens, one coffee, you can sit there for, for hours. And of course, that's what we did when we were teaching English. You know, we didn't have a car. We rode around on bicycles. And if you left your bicycle outside a shop, you could leave your bag in your bike, come back an hour later, it's still there. There was no worries about anything like that. We left our flat door unlocked all the time. And uh, yeah, and then coming back to England, I was sort of looking behind me all the time, wondering who was there. You know, I felt more nervous being back in England. I remember once trying to get on a bus and sorting out my English coins. And the bus driver told me to hurry up. I nearly burst into tears because I hadn't been used to it. <laughs> it was funny. It was funny. But, you know, like everything, you get used to it again after a while. And now I'm back and forward between Japan so much because I get over to England every year, you know, that it doesn't bother me at all. But, yeah, there was more of a reverse culture shock. Also, in those days, we're talking about 1982, there were very few foreigners in Japan who weren't in the big cities for business. You rarely got people sightseeing, especially in a place like Saga. 
obviously if you went to somewhere like Kyoto or Hiroshima you're going to get that contingent so the people there would be used to seeing foreigners walking around but where we were you know sometimes it was like being a rock star people walking down the street would stop you and ask for your autograph just because you're not Japanese it was it was pretty unusual sometimes but very nice I mean the people were so great that we got on well with pretty much everybody so that was good Nowadays, nearly every elementary school as well has a foreign language ALT teacher. So the uh, percentage of foreign people living in all over Japan has risen sort of dramatically since those days. But yeah, people walking down the street would look and who's that? My friend caused a car accident, actually. One of my female friend's old school friend came to visit her. She was walking down the street and the guy looked at her. Oh, there's a foreigner. And he hit the car in front because he was too busy looking at her. So, yeah, I don't think that happens so much now anyway. But yeah, it was returning to England was more of a shock than actually arriving in Japan. I think because we were expecting it to be different. You know, things like the food and the little flat and being with two friends also helped, I guess. If I'd been on my own, if any of us had been on our own, it probably would have been more difficult. But we had two of my best mates with me to get on with. So I guess that made, made a big change, made a big help. When we arrived in Saga was our first experience of the Jikiden. And there wasn't a set Iaido practice at all at our dojo. The kendo was six mornings a week, plus two evenings, but the EI practice was down to whichever of the three senseis happened to decide to come along for an hour before the evening practice, or decided to stay for an hour after the morning practice. And if any one of those three were there, we would uh, join in with him and he'd give us a few pointers, you know. However, and I guess this is a good point to consider when it comes to Eido, there were three teachers who taught us their versions of Jikiden. And apparently one time, Roy, he approached one of the senseis and said, I'm a little confused of how to do this. You're showing me this way. Otsubo sensei showing me that way. Koenagi sensei showing me that way to do this form. So which one do I do? <laughs> he said, well, let's go and look at Kamo sensei's book. And they got his book out and it was different again. So, <laughs> I think the best way to sum that up would be something that Harana-sensei said. And Harana-sensei was always very good at showing alternate ways of doing techniques. And I think the point being, as he said to me on one occasion, he, Harana-sensei, was small in stature. So he needs to make his forms look more grand, bigger, dynamic. I'm taller and I've got longer legs and long arms, so I don't need to make the forms as big as he does. So you look at the various ways of doing a technique and then you choose the one that suits your physicality, your style, your body shape. And so, yeah, as we know with Jikiden, depending on the form you're doing, there's more than one way to do a certain movement, the way you move forward, the way you move back, etc. So you try them all and go with the one that's most comfortable for you. And I guess that's what helps to make our Iaido personal in that way rather than us all being robotic so uh, i always remember that story of roy's and I always remember that comment of harana sensei so i thought they went very well together and then of course it just depends on the teacher having the open mind to let you try different things and uh, go the way that you feel is right for you it was during that year that i first heard about harana sensei 
because Ishido Sensei from Kanagawa, he had already been coming over to England since 79 or 80, and he'd started the European seminars, which we attended the first English ones in 1980-81. But Fuji-sensei had said to Ishido-sensei that since now everybody was getting well into the Seitei-ai, and Ishido-sensei was from the Shindenyu group, and being Saga, Fuji-sensei's background was Jikiden. So he asked Ishido-sensei, now that we were starting to get into the Koryu, would it be possible to bring a Jikiden-sensei as part of the Iaido group, you know, in the next year or future years? So that was how Ishido-sensei introduced us to Harama-sensei. I think he brought him over in, I don't know, it might have been in 82, of course, while I was in Japan, so I may have missed him. I think they did the seminar in London at the Elephant and Castle. So my first actual meeting with Harana-sensei, I think, would have been in the summer of 83, when he came over on probably what was his second visit to England. Yeah, I think so. So speaking of Haruna-sensei, when did he become more than just that visitor to England once a year that you see him? When yeah. did you develop? Well, I guess, you know, because we'd done a little bit of Jikiden, I don't even think, I think we'd only done the Omoridu while we did that year in Japan. But then coming back to England and then Haruna-sensei coming over on the uh, seminar. Of course, we still did, the group on the seminar always all did their... Seitei together, but of course you broke up into groups according to ability, but then there'd always be a day or two of Koryu as well. So then the Shinden and the Jikiden would split. And I guess because either myself or a couple of the other guys like myself that have been to Japan, we had a, a smattering of half a dozen Japanese words. We ended up being the go-between, the translator between Harana-sensei and the other members of the seminar who had only had not been to Japan at all. So, you know, I got to know him a bit more. And of course, then I'd be going with, with Fuji-sensei, probably in my car that we'd go to the airport in and we'd pick them up and bring them to the hotel or whatever. So I was involved in the organization a little bit of of looking after the senseis as well. So I guess I got to know him a bit better through that. And that carried on, I guess, through 84, 85, 86, 87. And then around that time, I can't say exactly why, maybe I wasn't happy with the job I was doing, but I thought, hmm, I wouldn't mind going back to Japan again. But this time, I wanted a different experience to Saga. So I thought, okay, then I'll talk to Haruna Sensei. Maybe I talked to him on the seminar when he was over. More than likely, I said I was thinking about coming to Japan. Would it be possible to stay with him? And so we arranged that for, yeah, 1988, which turned into two years, 1988-89. Now, you did ask earlier about how we got on with visas, etc. yeah? So when we came over to Saga, we basically had like a student visa with the dojo as the sponsor. I say student visa, it might have been what they call a cultural studies visa, something like that, because we weren't strictly students, you know? So yeah, we had a visa and I think the dojo sensei was our sponsor for that. So that was our main reason for being there. You know, we weren't there to work full time or anything like that. When I came back in 88, I did the same through Haruna-sensei. He was my sponsor for my 
what turned into a two years stay from the early, early 1988 through to November, December 1989, basically those two calendar years. And then I was set up in his hometown of Ohara, which is known as the birthplace of Miyamoto Musashi, or at least one of his birthplaces. Okay, we'll leave that at that. And uh, even there, Ohara's changed quite a bit since then because there was no highway linking it to the north to Totori and the uh, coast there. The train tracks had been laid down several years before, but I heard they run out of money. So when I was here in 88 and 89, there were no trains running through, there were no train stations built. And my daily life schedule was very different. I was on my own this time as well. I decided to come alone. So I had my own little apartment. And this was all sorted out by Harana Sensei and his family. And his daughter owns a family restaurant in town. So my work was working in the restaurant from about nine in the morning until about five in the evening. And I run the little coffee shop area, making the teas and coffees and the sandwiches. And I'd have my lunch and dinner in there. And then basically almost every night, I'd be in the dojo with Harana Sensei. There was a Friday night when I went to another kendo dojo, but I was doing kendo with the kids' kendo and the adults three days a week. And we were in the Musashi dojo there three days a week. We went to Harana Sensei's Sensei's dojo once a week. And we had another dojo that Harana Sensei taught at, a small group another day of the week. So I think that was basically Monday to Friday. That took care of that. Plus Saturdays when we were there. But also on the weekends, at least once a month, we'd be going off all over the country to various either seminars or taikai. And he and I were taking part in those. Or if it was something only he was involved in, then I'd be there as support and watching. So yeah, we spent quite a lot of time together during that time. Sometimes only the two of us in the dojo for three or four hours. So that was a two-year stint, and then... That was a two-year stint, yeah. That was January, basically January 88 to the end of November 89. Yeah, during that time, I got my fifth dan at the Okayama Ken grading. And then for the final month, I went down to Saga, and I did 10 kendo practices a week, and I did my yondan for kendo at the end of that. And then I came back to Ohara, spent a couple of weeks with everybody there. And then I went back to England. Yeah, that grading was interesting because I was the only person taking fifth down. So people doing Shodan, Nidan, Sandan, Yondan, there's always like more doing the grades as you go up, maybe only three or four for third down, three or four for fourth down. But when I went out to do the fifth down, I was the only one there. So I had all seven judges. You know, sometimes you can think, oh, maybe they're looking at that guy instead of me. But I couldn't get away with that with this grading. So everybody was focused on me for the whole time. But I think, no, I don't think at the time it bothered me particularly. I think Having spent two years under Harris Sensei's wing, providing I didn't fall over, I thought I was going to be okay. So yeah, I got away with it somehow. So yeah, that rounded off the trip for me. I didn't go there with any specific plan for a grading. It was just the way things worked out. You, you mentioned that there were a few times that it was just you and Haruna Sensei. Did he have other Yado students in Ohara or was he always just teaching outside of? There, 
there were a few people in Ohara, not many, but people used to come, like even his best friend Mano Sensei in Kurashiki, which is 100 kilometers away. People from his dojo used to come up once or twice a month. People from Himeji, which is 80 kilometers in the other direction, they used to come almost every week. So a surprising amount of people came from quite long distances, driving a couple of hours to get there for a two hour, two and a half hour practice, and then they'd have that drive home again. So, you know, on average, maybe six, eight or 10 in the dojo, maybe in the winter, the numbers would go down a little bit. As I say, there were some occasions, but it was just the two of us. And also the two of us did the midnight practice where you go over between the old year and the new year. And we did that as well, just the two of us. And quite often we might just sit in the dojo for an hour or two talking about the different aspects of Iaido and he'd be talking about other sensei that he knew way back in the day and things that he experienced, things that he happened. So yeah, there was a lot of other background stuff that we were able to talk about without actually practicing, which was uh, yeah, a very good, very good experience. So you've been able to have this personal relationship with him. What are things that you think that people don't know about him that uh, you've been able to experience or learn? (laughs) He used to be a school teacher. He taught science. I think it was junior high school. And apparently he was very strict. He was a very strict school teacher. I think his Iaido teaching was in a way the opposite. I mean, it was exact. It was correct, but I I felt that he had a very big heart, a warm heart, you know? And he would often spend more time teaching basics to the beginners than he would, you know, worrying about the trickier bits for the higher grades sort of thing. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the dojo, it seemed like he had an eagle eye. He could see somebody's finger was in the wrong place, 30 yards across the dojo with 20 people in between. He seemed to be very good at spotting those things. And, and I think his, his way of explaining things, I always found to be very clear and very open in the fact that he said, you know, you can do it this way, you can do it that way, try this, try that, and do what's right for you. I always thought that was a good point, which I've tried to follow. Obviously, after those two years, you didn't just go back and say, okay, time to settle down in the UK. well I guess I did I mean when I went back that time I had no thought on whether I'd be back to Japan again during the two years that I'd been away I did go back to England because I went with Haruna Sensei for the seminars so I actually went over with him as his support I think both years yeah because uh, his granddaughter came with us on one occasion and also a couple of the students from Kurashiki as well, from his friend Mano Sensei's dojo. So I'm, I know for certain I went back in 88. And also we did have a few visitors. That was really when the foreign visitors started coming to Japan, which was something else that we wanted to talk about. But we did actually have a few visitors during that very first two years. I think because they knew I was there, it would be easier for them. And so we, it was easy to set up a little apartment for them or one or two of them staying at my place. Yeah, so things started to take off from around that time with the foreign visitors coming to Ohara. But when I went back in at the end of 88, I didn't really have any thought on whether I'd be back to Japan again. 
I mean, even when we went the first time, it was like a once in a lifetime trip. This will never happen again. And then it happens again. So, you know, I guess I was keeping an open mind more than anything else. Went back. I was working as a, a sales representative and usually with that sort of industry, you know, finding sales jobs when you've got a bit of experience and moving on and leaving, it's not difficult. So it wasn't any problem finding a job at that time. And oh, I can remember the Japan times really well. What happened in England in between is a bit more of a blur. But yeah, back at the dojo, running the club, joining back in with everybody. Fuji Sensei was still working hard and building up the dojo. We were doing all the competitions in England, Iaido and Kendo, taking part in everything that was going on. I was, I think around that time, I was getting involved with the organization of the British Kendo Association as well, because I'd taken on the job as armorer, the Kendo armorer, which meant I had all the stock of all the Shinai and Iaito and spare armors. Everything was in my flat. And every time there was an event, I'd load everything into my car and I'd be setting up a stall and selling stuff and also postal things and taking great big packs of 12 Shinai down to the post office and sending them off to the north of England and stuff like that. So I was getting involved with the British Kendo Association a bit more at that time as well, as well as just doing my own thing and... We had a couple of other clubs that were offshoots from our main dojo. So I had my own dojo that I was running one night a week. And one of the other guys I'd been to Japan with, he had his own place. And then we'd all come together on a couple of the other nights. So by that time, we were doing eight practices a week, something like five kendo and three EI in various parts of South London. So I was doing all of those practices almost as much as I was doing in England. And yeah, I guess that carried on through the early 90s. And then 93-ish or late 92, I fancied doing it again. <laughs> so at that time, I was thinking possibly to try and stay in Kobe because Oyster Sensei started getting involved. Nothing against Ohara, I just thought, again, a different experience, a different part of the country. So I came to Ohara. And I stayed a week or two, met everybody, went over to Kobe, stayed with a friend there. The job thing didn't pan out as it happened. So Hannah Sensei said, well, why don't you come back to Ohara? So I did. And I guess that worked out fairly well because that was just the year before the Kansai earthquake that hit Kobe. So I guess I was fortunate that I'd chosen to return to Ohara at that time. First time Saga was a set one year plan. The second time I'd pretty much set my mind to about two years. I don't know, maybe I decided because I was eligible for my fifth down then, so that might have had something to do with it. I'm not sure. But the third one was purely just see how it goes. If it's a year, it's a year. If it's two, whatever. By that time, I'd found a full-time job with an English language company based in Siyama, which is about a 40-minute drive from Ohara. So I actually ended up living in an apartment sort of halfway between the two. I figured that's good because it's only half an hour to work and in the other direction, half hour to the practice. So I guess I was a little bit more independent then because I had my own flat and I had my own job. So all three experiences up to then were completely different. You know, people say, oh, what can I expect when you go to Japan? 
or even for me, coming back time and time again, the experience has been completely different. So expect the unexpected. That's all I can say. Again, I was thinking about a two-year plan, but then when I was due to return to England, the teacher that was going to take over from me at the company quit suddenly. So I said, okay, then I'll stay on an extra year. So I ended up doing three years instead of the two that I originally planned. But that wasn't a hardship. I just carried on. At that time, I was still training with Harana Sensei in the Sashi Dojo. I think it was mainly back there then by that time, yeah. I was still training with him three or four times a week and doing the kendo as well. So I spent those years in Japan, 93 to 97. When I went back to England, I left my stuff stored away because I had a feeling it wouldn't be long before I was back again. There was a storage space that Hara Sensei's family I had. All of my boxes of a few books and some clothing. I didn't take everything back to England as I had before, or I didn't dump it. I actually stored it away, you know, my little stereo and stuff like that. And I thought, hmm, I don't think it's going to be too long before I'm back again. And in fact, it turned out to be only two years. Back in England at the late summer of 97, and I was in England for two years, and then I came back again in April 99. I don't know, was I missing Japan? I don't think I was particularly unhappy with, with being in England. I mean, so many friends and family there. But yeah, I just thought, okay, let's go over fourth time lucky and open-ended, no set plan. By then I was coming up to be due for my EI seventh dan. So, yeah, possibly in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, I'll be able to do that while I'm out there. And it's certainly better to do it under Hanna-sensei's tuition than anything else. I came out this time, my fourth slightly extended stay, which is 21 years now. I came out in the April of 99, and I was actually eligible for my grading that coming November. However, in the February, two months before I left, I cut my index finger on my left hand open, almost down to the bone, on a piece of glass. I needed stitches, and of course it was swollen. And of course, the left hand gripping the koyaguchi, I couldn't close my finger any more than that, so I couldn't do EI, I couldn't guide the sword in. I couldn't do any EI at all for about six months or kendo, or anything, and my first eligibility for 7th down would have been that coming November. So, you know, Harun Sensei knew the situation, and gradually as the swelling went down and, and the cut healed, I could gradually bend the finger more and more until I could just about get it round the koigushi into a position where I could more or less put the sword away without sticking it in my shoulder. And so I guess I sort of returned to practice around the August time, something like that, it must have been. Here we are, two, two and a half months before a grading, and I can just pick up a sword again. I did do the grading, and I failed, and I'm not sorry about that at all, because I think if I'd have passed it, I would have probably quit EIDO, because it's like, well, if that's easy to get the grade, what's the point of doing it, you know? But fair enough, it wasn't right on the day, and it shouldn't have been. But Harana Sensei said, you know, the experience is good. Going up there, 
being there with those people and everything, it'll be an experience. I did it more for that. And that was the start of my fourth time in Japan, which I say was purely open to, okay, I'll stay until I get bored with Japan or I get homesick. And I've never been bored with Japan and I never feel homesick. So for some reason, I'm still here. <laughs> so all these trips have been mainly to go and be able to practice. I think so. Part. In that period where your hand was injured, you, that was kind of your first experience living in Japan where you weren't spending a lot of your time practicing. So how did you, what was that period like and how did you Those fill up your space? Those few months, well, for one thing, I was going back to rejoin the company that I'd worked for for the previous three years, 94 to 97. I was back at full-time work shortly after I arrived. I could still teach English even if I couldn't hold a sword. Also, something else had happened in the early 90s, around 91, 92, between the second and third trip. I put, a, <coughs> excuse me, I put a disc out on my back. I had a sort of a slip disc in the lower back. And that meant I was two weeks flat on my back, not being able to move. And it took me then about six months before I could walk faster than a shuffle and it just repaired at the time I was meant to be going to Belgium to teach a kendo EI weekend so that just about worked out, worked out I think from that time my kendo dropped off a little bit and I think that's why the EI grades you know I was able to do the grades I mean I could have taken my kendo fifth down anytime but I've never been in it just for the grades and if I don't do 10 practices a week for six months before I take a grade, then I'm not interested in getting the grade because, as I say, the grade alone isn't important to me. It's, it's, that's not what it's about. So EI has continued pretty much okay. But during those months, I guess I was concentrating on working. I was still going to the dojo with Hana Sensei on the regular practices. I was still getting to see him and talk to him and watch the practices with the other people. I was still involved to that extent. And I guess... You know, maybe just using a Vokto a little or, or whatever. I can't remember exactly. It's a while ago. Back into practice pretty much from the end of the year. Obviously, when Hanuna Sensei passed away, that would be a big point. Could you talk about that period of time when he was getting treatment and then... Yeah, yeah, that would have been around 2002, 2004. He'd just had his, because Japanese houses often get rebuilt every some number of decades, and he just had his house rebuilt shortly after I arrived back here in 99. And he had the house designed so that the entranceway was a dojo. You could actually practice inside his house. It had a high roof and very wide and very long through the center of the house. And we did do some practices there on occasions but we were still using the Musashi Dojo as well. But also around that time, at the turn of the century, the Musashi Budokan was built and the kids' kendo practices moved into there. So the smaller Musashi Dojo, which is basically one kendo shiai area, that wasn't used as much, but it was good for the EI, it was still more intimate for that. The Budokan is more like an arena, so it actually has six full-sized kendo areas in there. But I've been there when they've had competitions with uh, junior high school and elementary school kids, 
and they've actually made the areas smaller and they've had 14 Shiaijo in one room. And that's a sight to see when you see all the kids going at once. Yeah. But yeah, generally, Hana Sensei was still practicing and he was still coming over to England in 2000, 2001. And then his cancer got a bit worse. And unfortunately, you know, it was a little bit downhill from there until that, that September, which I think might have been 2004. Yeah. As it happened, Greg Robinson was in Japan at the time. I think Pam was here. So if I remember correctly, the three of us were at Hana Sensei's funeral, which was nice. So we had representatives from the three main countries that he visited. So that was good. So yeah, that was a sad time, of course. Prior to that, whenever Hana Sensei traveled, he usually had other Jikiden Sensei with him. And during that time, Oshita Sensei was his main support. So since then, Oshita Sensei has taken over the uh, seminars in England. And, uh, you know, he's in Kobe, it's a little bit further away from me. And he usually comes to Ohara twice a year at least because he brings the Kobe University students for their Gashuku training camp in the spring and in the autumn. So if I don't get over to Kobe as often as I like, then I also get to see him when he comes here. You're saying that a lot of your time was spent practicing or talking to Haruna Sensei. How did you prepare for him not being around and how did you prepare yourself? I can't think of any particular preparation. You know, I understand the question, but yeah, I mean, it was sort of inevitable once you knew that he wasn't going to survive. I was asked to go to the hospital, which I did. So I was actually with him the evening before, you know, he passed away during the night, but I actually got to sit with him and hold his hand that, that final evening sort of thing. And then I got a phone call the following day saying that he'd passed away during the night. Yeah. But prior to that, there wasn't, on my part, there wasn't any physical preparation or anything, you know. And of course, he hadn't been training in the dojo for a while prior to that. Around that time, I was also, I think that was around the time when I started teaching at a, at a dojo near Tsuyama, because there were some foreign people who were working similar to my job as an English teacher. But like me, most of our work was afternoon and evenings. So they often had their mornings free and some of them wanted to do kendo and or iaido so i started a once a week morning practice for them doing very basic stuff out of a dojo that was built onto the side next to a temple just outside siyama in the countryside up in the mountains so i used to go there once a week and teach kendo and ei and that was also another dojo that i could use which was also handy because it was closer when i was working in that area you know as you lived there more, there's more foreigners coming to live. So it's not that uncommon now to see in Japan. What, what other things in the last 20 years did you start noticing changing where you're living or just around the places that you go? Ohara, as I say, compared with when I first came here at the end of the 80s, they finally finished building the railway and they put some stations in. And as you're probably aware, just around the corner from the dojo is the Miyamoto Musashi train station, 
which I believe was the first ever train station in Japan to be named after a person. I think there might be one or two others now, but yeah, that particular little station is Miyamoto Masashi-eki. But the area as a whole, I no longer live in Ohara village. I live in Mimasaka city because they did an amalgamation of small towns to create a city. So I now live on the outskirts of a city that's got mountains and rivers running through the middle of it. They built a small highway that runs north. They're going to finally join it up south because most of the highways in Japan run east to west. So there's very little in the way of connections that run north-south. But now I can get up to the beach in uh, Totori in about 45-50 minutes compared with an hour and a half before when it was just one single road up and around the mountains. Ohara hasn't really changed very much, not really. The, the Pari restaurant where I used to work is still there. I usually go for lunch there once a week. Most of the other buildings are still the same. They have built a nursing school on the site of where part of the old high school was. And they now have some Vietnamese students studying nursing there. And it's also a sports medicine place. So that was opened about two years ago. Walking, going up and down the main street, there's not an awful lot that you notice has changed unless you've sort of been here for a while. It's still a bit of a sleepy little town. We don't have to worry too much about social distancing because there's, there's hardly anybody to brush shoulders with. <laughs> we mentioned a little bit about the foreigner visits, but maybe you can yeah, go a little yeah. more detail about... Yeah, like, yes, I meant to go into that. Yeah, I'd say that really the number of foreign visitors has particularly grown over the last 20 years or so. As I say, I'm sure we must have had visitors in the 90s. We certainly had them even when I was here in 88, 89. Those people, some of them came specifically because they knew I was here and I'd be able to look after them. But even Haruna Sensei had other visitors. I mean, I met a couple of people that he knew that I'd never met before. There was a gentleman from Holland that came here that I'd never met before, that Haruna Sensei, I think, had met while he was in Europe. I got to meet him for the first time. But certainly from the time that I've been here, just before Aruna Sensei died and afterwards, we've had a very steady stream of regular Iaido visitors. I mean, the people that helped to run the seminars in England while I've been here, they took over a lot of the responsibility for the Jikiden. They've had a very close connection with Haruna Sensei over the years through the late 90s and the 2000s. Uh, they still make regular trips to Japan because they also want to go to other places too, but they're always here in Ohara for two, three or four days. And we usually have a couple of days sessions at the dojo and either they stay here with me or we book accommodation for them. And there's been people from Belgium, Switzerland, as you know yourself, America, Canada. And if people can't make it back every year, then often they, you know, every other year or every two or three years. So there's a steady stream, usually in the springtime or late summer is usually a good time for people to come. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, there's, there hasn't been any visitors this year. Those that were planning to come over had to cancel because of the virus and the Kyoto Taikai and I think the eighth day grading didn't happen during Golden Week either. So obviously looking forward to when that will change. 
I've been doing one other thing, which has brought even more visitors to the dojo. I, I made a connection with some friends who own a uh, hotel and they advertise on their web website, obviously things like going down to Kyoto to the sword, uh, sorry, going down to Okayama City to the sword museum in the Bizen area looking at the pottery, but also we invite them to come to the Musashi Dojo where they can see Kendo and Iaido up close. So it's more like an experience. Sure, you know, people can go to the Budokan in Tokyo and look down and see a bit of Kendo. They may not know what's going on. They can sometimes see an Iaido demonstration if they're lucky. But I've got an arrangement with the hotel where if people want to come to Ohara, and have a look around the Musashi area. I give them a talk on the history of Musashi, talk about the history of Kendo and Iaido and how they've developed up to modern day. And then I can give them a demonstration of both arts and they can feel what it's like to hold a sword themselves or try the armor on, etc. So I'm also trying to spread the word to non-martial artists who can come along and experience something that they may not get a chance to do otherwise. And being that tour guide person, you've already had so much experience with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm getting to be quite smooth with my pattern now. Yeah. I know where to insert the jokes and where not to. Yeah. <laughs> you need to make deals with the local restaurants and say, hey, I'll bring these visitors here. Well, as you know, from your own experience, I discovered a French bakery only a 10 minute drive up the road and Olivier and his wife, Hiromi, are still running that on a regular basis. So I'm still going up there for my fresh bread every Saturday and my quiche and my pizza and my muffins. And it was very lucky the way that worked out because... I think it was only a month or a few weeks before you came over for the uh, second time. And uh, I just went up to the bank as I do once a month to check that my salary had gone in and draw out my cash. But on this one occasion, I only wanted to check the balance and I didn't know which button to push because they don't have English on there. And there was a Japanese woman standing next to me and I asked her in Japanese, and she spoke in better English than me. She said, oh, what's the problem? Can I help you? Oh, wow. You know, and so she told me which button to press. I did what I did. And I said, either she said to me or I said to her, you know, do you live near here? And I said, well, I live in Ohara. How about you? And she said, oh, just up the road. My husband and I have a French bakery there. We were open every Saturday. So if you'd like to come up and see us, please do. So I went up that very first Saturday and I've been there every Saturday since, basically as you know, because you came over a few weeks afterwards and I took you up there. I think your photo is still on the wall, actually. So the bakery is not for money, it's not for profit. He said if, I, if he had to do it every day of the week, getting up at 4 a.m. to bake, uh, it would be too much, but he does it because he enjoys it. And also it's a good way of bringing people together because there's a surprising number of foreign people living in this area. There's, there was a Canadian guy who was living just over the road from the bakery, only 10 minutes from here. There's, uh, oh, there's Gerge from, he's from, he's European, East European country, maybe Hungary, maybe Hungarian. I think he's Hungarian. And he's a farmer 
and he owns property here and he grows specialist vegetables that he sells to specialist shops in Tokyo area. There's another English guy doing a similar thing not too far from here. So there was one Saturday by chance when we were in the bakery when we had people from every English-speaking country. We had a Canadian, an American, an Englishman, an Australian and a New Zealander. So yeah, it's quite an international get-together place as well. Plus other foreign people visit there as well because they've got, they've got their own connections abroad and yoga friends visiting from other countries too, quite often. And if I get the chance, I usually bring them down for a tour of the dojo and show them around. So yeah, we've got quite a lot going on around here at the moment. What do you find that when foreigners come to visit and you kind of take them around to town and show yeah. them stuff, what seems to be most interesting to them or something? When you say foreigners, do you mean foreigners that already do EI, the people that I know that come to visit, or the strangers who come because they are here with the tour sort of thing, you know, with they're here on holiday and they visit me for a day just to see a bit of EI and Kendo. Which group do you mean? Let's look at both, and if they're different, okay. that'd be interesting too. Well, I think in the case of, of the regular visitors, I think the first thing they want to do if they've never been here before is spend some time in the Masashi Dojo, you know? And then whether they've seen photos of Ohara before or they know that I'm here, I don't think they're here obviously for sightseeing, not here in Ohara. When they come to Ohara, they're here because they want to see the dojo and spend some time in the dojo. Even if it's only me, they got to teach them and not somebody like Harana Sensei, you know, they just have to make do. So that's mainly, but then whenever people do visit, they're not only coming just to visit Ohara, you know, they're obviously going to visit other areas where they can sightsee and visit Tokyo, Kyoto, places like that. So I think when they come here, it's mainly because they want to visit the dojo and spend some time practicing. In the case of the visitors who come for the Kendo Iaido experience, I found that most of them are people that have visited Japan before and they've already done the touristy places. They've already visited the shrines and the temples, etc., and some of the other main sites. So these are people who've come to Japan on their second or third or fourth trip and they want to visit more out of the way places where they can see something more about traditional Japan. They're interested in the sword making, they're interested in weaving, the cloth dyeing and the Bizen pottery which is down in the south of Okayama. They're more interested in the history of Miyamoto Musashi and how the, the sword developed and how it developed from uh, wartime through to the kendo. There tends to be a lot of questions asked by those groups. You know, some of them, they're not so interested in actually doing it, but they're very interested in the background and the history, which I guess our Iaido and kendo visitors don't ask so much because they've already been into that because they do the practice sort of thing. So yeah, I have to brush up on my history a little bit in those cases. We've talked about the experience leading up to now, and you say you still haven't gotten bored of Japan. No, you know, I enjoy, I mean, I'm still working for an English school. This is a different one to the one I was with in the 90s. 
and I only came back to them for one year when I first arrived here. But I joined a friend's company and I've been with them now from 2003, so ooh, 17 years. And my work schedule is not too difficult, it's convenient. I have mornings mostly free and one or two evenings I can get away a bit early. My weekends are free, so I've got plenty of time for if visitors come. And I don't have a chance to do very much kendo now because you need somebody to practice with. You know, if I can get to see Oyster Sensei or somebody, I still get to practice with them. I mean, you've, you've visited my place, so you know I've got a nice apartment that I'm living in. I'm living in a nice, quiet area. And I still want to get back to England every year, and I've still got family that I want to see. But it's scary how quick the time seems to go. When we had that very first year, I think the first six months of being in Japan and doing kendo in Saga, it's like, wow, this is great. And then it's like, God, can I survive a whole year ticking off the days until you go home almost, you know? But it doesn't feel like that now. And uh, I still think of England as home. I still think of this as a short trip, even though it's somehow become 21 years. This is just my latest little visit, you know? It was never intended that I live here. And I still think of England as home. And I've still got my flat, which I own in England, where someone's staying in right now, renting it. And I guess I will return there at some point. You know, my present work visa is good until May 2023. And ooh, I'll be 68 by then. Think about that. So will my boss still want somebody <laughs> of that age teaching English? Who knows what's going to happen? I'm quite happy with what I'm doing this week and what I'm doing next week. And all the time I'm fit and healthy. I don't worry about it too much. So just take it as it comes, really. I think a great way to wrap up this one would be, as you were saying, a lot of people come to visit because they know you're there and you can help out with that. Yeah. Um, and now you're part of this hotel package. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you can go over that. What can they look forward to if they were to come visit you? Where would you take them? What would the general itinerary look like? Okay, you mean like uh, nothing to do with the hotel because those people are like a separate thing. But if people come here specifically to see me and they want to stay with me or stay in one of the local places for a, a couple of days and stay for two or three days or three or four days, Really, it's a case of what are they interested in and what else do they want to do? I mean, obviously, if they're coming here and they want to practice, if they want to practice, we can practice as much as they want to. You know, if I've got a day off from work, then we could be in the dojo from nine in the morning till nine at night. That doesn't matter. So that's an option. But, you know, if they want to see something of the area, then, of course, th there is that as well. I mean, we can go down to Okayama to Osafune and visit the sword making place there. There's the Bizen Pottery place down there as well. Okayama City has got Okayama Castle and the Korakuen Park, which is one of the three most beautiful parks in Japan. It's one of the three that's designated uh, cultural treasure, UNESCO World Heritage Site. But discovering small things that are going on in the local area, which I didn't know about before, I mean, heading to the north, there is this beautiful restaurant that is actually, the tables are set underneath the trees. And somebody described it as like being in Hobbiton. 
and all of the food like all the fish they catch in the river that runs by it all the vegetables are locally produced and they've got tatami rooms as well and like just tables set up and it's run by this uh, older couple and actually that's also one of the things that's on the itinerary that the hotel runs so quite often people come to me and uh, they visit the dojo i show them a little bit around the musashi area if there's time mostly we're in the dojo and i'm usually with them for an hour and a half to two hours and then when i finish they get taken up to this place that's out amongst the forest and they usually go there to have lunch as part of their their day out day trip and whatever else they've arranged is through them but yeah, really, and then, as I say, the beach. There's a beautiful sandy beach. It's actually got an enormous sand dune. You can paraglide off the top, and, and you can ride a camel if you want to, too, a Japanese camel. So that's only an hour's drive to the north. And another very good place to visit there is the Watanabe Bijutsukan, the Watanabe Museum. Mr. Watanabe was a doctor maybe just before or just after the Second World War, and he traveled extensively throughout Asia, and he collected things. And this museum has got loads of swords, loads of tsuba. Did we go there? Maybe we never had a chance to go there. Yeah, he's got some really old kendo armor. He's got loads of yoroi. And they even have a couple of special sets that you can try on and have your picture taken for free. Other areas have got old vintage cameras. There's another area with piles of Japanese money. Loads of notes from the Edo period. They've got shop signs from the Edo period. They've got a suit of knight's armor as well from Europe. There's another area that's got all stuff from India, various Buddha icons. It's just an amazing collection of various types of historical paraphernalia. But the, the sword and the collection and the kabuto is also a very good stop off there if I get a chance to take people there. It's a good two hours of walking around there and looking at a lot of interesting stuff. And some of it you wouldn't expect to see as well. So yeah, there's, there's a few things to see. And maybe, I can't remember again, you'll have to remind me, the dojo I was talking about out at the 1,200-year-old temple, uh, did we visit there? That's the one that I used to teach at. Was that the one on the lake? Yes, the lakeside one. You went there. No, we didn't go there, but you told oh, us about it. Yeah, so it's a one kendo area-sized dojo, and half of it is built out over the lake come reservoir. So it's on stilts, you can actually go underneath it. Very cold in the winter though. The two sides facing the water have glass windows, so you've got a beautiful view outside, and you've got a 1200 year old temple to one side, and then you've got the lake, the little lakeside area to the other. I've got access to that whenever people might want to come there and maybe do a little practice too. Oh, absolutely, we have to, we can't miss that next yeah. time. Yeah, please do, please do. Uh, so that's already quite a few days. Like you can do a day trip to Okayama City yeah. and you can do like a trip to the beach and the museum maybe in one day. The Watanabe and the beach easily one day. Actually the beach about six or seven years ago they built and opened what's called a sand museum. 
it's not a collection of sand from different beaches all out the world. What it is, it's sand sculpture. And you know, it's somehow like freeze dried. So once it's set, it's like that until you knock it down. In 2012, they did a feature on England in time for the Olympics. Every year they feature a different country and they make like a life-size horse and carriage with the queen in it, life-size. I mean, things like the Tower of London or Buckingham Palace are scaled down. But they might have another area talking about, I don't know, Isaac Newton or somebody. And then I have a full-sized model of him with his likeness of Shakespeare in sand with a background of whatever's happening in that scene. And it's an enormous building, obviously. And, you know, you can walk around and see all the different aspects of that particular country. So they've done, you know, they've done Germany, they've done America, they've done England. Possibly this year it may not be on, but that's quite an amazing thing to see if you're interested in that. So yeah, there's probably, you know, a day out up towards the north at the beach and the museum. And then there's a day down south. You've got the gardens and the castle and also, as we say, the sword museum and the pottery. And then, of course, here we've got the dojo and the Budokan and a few other things nearby. Especially someone coming from a large city, just being able to walk around the town and see the streams. Uh, you took us yeah. up to the mountain to look at the Musashi Budokan from the top view? Yes, yes. Well, actually, I seem to remember that it was someone in your group that actually discovered that place because I didn't know about it. Was it you or somebody took a walk up there and came back and said, hey, there's a thing up there? Maybe it was on your first trip. Maybe Kevin or somebody took a walk up there and discovered it. Or it might have been when Sandra was here. It might have been on that occasion. But at first, I didn't know about that until somebody told me about it. And then, of course, I started taking people up there regularly and still do because the view is amazing. The view is amazing from there. And, uh, yeah, even looking down on Ohara and looking down at the dojo and the uh, Budokan, and of course, as you know, the Budokan is quite a, an unusual structure too. So uh, that's something worth seeing. Cool, great. So we spent an hour and 40 minutes. Thank you for taking so much time to share your experience. One last question. I'm sure that people, when they visit, they always want to know a little bit more about you and your experience. Is there anything that you haven't said that you think people will be curious about? I mean, people always say, I'm coming to Japan, what am I going to need? Or always, one of the questions is, so how much money do I need? And I say, well, bring whatever you've got, it still won't be enough. Because, you know, you always find other things to buy. I mean, I don't find Japan to be very expensive, probably because I'm living here. It's mainly the exchange rate that affects people. And obviously, if you're changing up Canadian dollars or Australian dollars or whatever it is, whenever you're in a foreign country, whichever country you're in, you're always translating back into your own how much is this costing me? And I guess I don't do that so much now. Um, I mean, when I first came here in 82, it was 429 yen for one pound. Now it's about 150 yen. So based just on the exchange rate, everything's gone up by three times the cost. Yeah, approximately. I think Fuji Sensei said that when he came to England in the 60s, it was a thousand yen to the one pound. And when I came over in 82, it was 429. And of course it's gone down a little bit up since then. But I think one of the things about prices in Japan is there's been very little inflation. 
When I think about a coffee can or a can of Coke from one of the Japanese vending machines, the cost is 120 or 130 yen. They may have reduced the size a little bit, but it's still only 20 or 30 yen more than it was 30 years ago. So there hasn't been much increase in price. But in England, a can of Coke is about four or five hundred percent because of inflation. So when you balance that out, I mean, gasoline is cheaper here than England. Food is about half the price for an average meal in a restaurant. And that's coming from friends from England that have been over saying, wow, you know, it's cheaper here than England. So I think it's nice when you go to a country and there are things that surprise you. So I won't give away any, any secrets. I don't have any. <laughs> cool. All right. So, yeah, as I say, do you normally just leave everything in the order that it is? Yeah, if there's something that I find sticks together, then I'll move it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. You know, I don't mind what you do. It's all yours to play with. All right. Okay? Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. That's OK. How's mm -hmm. Hannah? Is she doing good? She's great, actually. Why don't, since we're finished here, Okay. Let her say hi. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting interviews and resources to help you explore the world of martial arts. To get the latest on what we're up to at Tokushikai Canada, subscribe to our newsletter at subscribe.tokushikai.ca and find us on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>